three main areas, which was we want it had to be sustainable without doubt. We we're going to future proof that business. It, it has to be sustainable. It had to be ethical and 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 have have an ethical kind of dividend uh, and make sure that we kind of engaged in the right way. And 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 whether that's with our local community stakeholders employees whatever it may be uh, and then there was a financial return for our investors as well and a financial dividend hello and welcome to zebra talk my name is matt mayer i'm your host and today i'm in conversation with stephen dring who is the co-founder of growing underground which is a genuinely fascinating london-based urban farming business very much at the forefront of the agricultural revolution. And Stephen is a fellow advocate for good business and a, a second career unconventional farmer. So Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me today. That's all right. It's really, really good to be in conversation. And I think I was, I was excited about today's conversation because I think it's very timely for a couple of reasons. Firstly, agriculture has been very much in the spotlight in 2020 because of the supply chain challenges that the, the, the pandemic has thrown up. But also, in a, in a more positive way, that sense that uh, the fact that investment is now following technology, is now following um, technology evolution in the agricultural sector, very much gives me the sense that agritech, in the broadest sense, has, has, has reached its moment, has found its time. Um, so it's really good to be able to catch up with you today, and I appreciate you, you making the time. Stephen, Zebra Project is all about um, sharing kind of unconventional responses to, to business challenges, to societal problems. And I think your farm, um, as I said, a fully commercial farm in the centre of London is very much a, an unconventional response to some challenges. I, I guess a really good way to, to kick off our conversation would just be to ask you, who who builds a fully functioning commercial farm 33 metres under the, under the ground in central London? And more importantly, why? Uh, clearly a man going through a midlife crisis. Um, no, it's uh, why is a bloody good question. Um, no, I think it comes back to uh, being approached by by my business partner, both both of us, uh, old school friend, both of us being extremely passionate about uh, sustainability, concerned about climate change, and it was just a case of where can we and and it's it's that that old bystander effect that they say if you fall over in London you should hope that only one person is watching uh because if one person's watching then they'll come to your aid uh but obviously everyone expects everyone else to be doing something about it and it's the the same with climate change it's such a big problem you think somebody must be doing something about this somewhere um and and we kind of sat down and we would have these pub arguments and realized that we weren't uh the the, the response that there wasn't one big solution and the responsibility was down to to us to play our part and we would sit down we would argue about pubs uh, argue about uh, in a pub on a friday night about the future of cities and food and water scarcity and energy and democratization of energy and richard my business partner approached me with this book by a, an academic called dixon despomier uh called the vertical farm and it talked about a really small footprint of growing uh, building farms in office blocks above uh, uh, uh right where the food is being consumed so there's no distance for the product to travel um and rich kind of obviously knew of my uh, background working for a plc and and had the ability to run a few cost models and things like that and uh so i kind of ran the numbers on it and it does just didn't scan in terms of, of and just from the efficiencies of trying to trying to move produce from the 
42nd floor of a tower block and real estate costs and all these good things, uh, it kind of didn't work. And serendipitously, I, I guess you would say, Richard said, well, I know about these tunnels underneath London. And what we were looking for was somebody that somewhere that was a, a commercial size space. Uh, if you're going to build a farm, you need to do it on a commercial scale. Uh, and somewhere that had a, an environment, it was pretty neutral in terms of consistent temperature, consistent humidity, consistent airflow. Um, and so that's how we end up with a, a farm underneath the streets of Clapham. Um, and as, if I can just kind of paint a picture, it was a World War II air raid shelter. There was 8,000 people down there during the war. It's two long linear tunnels built in the, 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 the exact spec of a tube tunnel. It's unrun underneath the Northern Line. And so they had eight of these running across London. And they were going to connect them together and create a, a an express northern line with eight stops from uh, Clapham South up to Belsize Park, which I think most anyone who gets on the northern line on a morning would actually absolutely kill for an express northern line, to be perfectly honest. Um, and they, they no, nothing happened with it. It just it, after the war, it just it, it never got developed and it just sat there. And so you've got basically these two tunnels that had bunk beds on upper and lower lev levels with a mezzanine floor kind of through the middle. Um, and and it had recreational areas, it had hospital down there, it had toilets. Um, basically, it had the facilities that if both entrances got hit, uh, it had the ability for people to survive down there for three months. So, and like, bizarrely, in one of the cross sections, they had half, like half a table tennis table for recreation. So people could kind of take their minds off what was going on above them. But yeah, it's a... It's not uh, a site that people would usually imagine for a farm to be in, but effectively what somebody's done is build us a huge polytunnel. Like, I don't know if I mentioned it, it's 70,000 square feet down there. Um, so it's, it's yeah, uh, absolutely huge size in terms of, in terms of commercial scale. Um, and, and like I said, it's like a polytunnel. It's got 100 feet of earth above it, which keep, keeps this consist, consistent temperature. And when you're bringing kind of technology to agriculture, which is what we're doing, we want to control the parameters to a forensic level. So something that's starting with a consistent 14 degrees all year round, it's really kind of makes it a lot easier to control those parameters. So yeah, that's how we end up with a farm underneath the streets of London. Interesting. And interesting that you pick up on the, uh, the importance of the environmental conditions, because I certainly get a sense when I've, when I've seen, seen the, the farm and images of the farm, that it very much looks more like a, a lab than what we traditionally think of as a farm. Is, is London late to the party on on urban farming? I mean, we my my own business has offices in in Brooklyn and in Singapore, and I think in those two locations we're quite familiar with urban farming because it may be on a rooftop location uh, in, in in Singapore or in in Brooklyn, lots of converted um, you know, studios or warehouses. But London, that that story of of urban farming and certainly vertical farming seems to be a relatively new one. Uh, it's it's also gone through a kind of few different names in terms of there was vertical farming that's what the academics were writing about then it was kind of urban farming for us it's controlled environment agriculture it's about controlling the environment to a forensic level um you saw it adopted very early in singapore because as you can imagine the, the the amount of farmland in singapore is zero um so obviously land being uh extreme like an absolute premium and, and local food food production being desired um, then it was they were the early adopters of this technology. Um, New York, 
um, had some early adopter, uh, adopters on the, on the rooftop of a, 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 a um, whole food store in, in Gotham Greens. Um, <clears throat> but they, they've now got their own kind of underground farm as well over there uh, on a slightly smaller scale or considerably smaller scale than ours. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's two cities that, as you can imagine, uh, adopted this technology early. Um, but we're now seeing it deployed. It, it's gone through a number of iterations over the last sort of yeah, six, eight years. It's gone through a number of iterations and people are really kind of finding their feet within this space and really kind of understanding how the technology works and, and where it works best and what technology to apply different technologies, different growing systems in, in, in different countries. So yeah, it, it's, it, it, we certainly did see some, some early kind of moves into this from those guys, that's for sure. A lot of our listeners uh, are interested in, in environmental issues, in business issues, societal issues. And, and one of the challenges they face and one of the challenges we're trying to address in this project is, is just getting uh, that, that sense of how other people have approached things and, 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 and some of the challenges that they've been through. I was, I was struck when you were talking at the beginning of our conversation about the, the genesis of this for you was, was conversations about, about uh, environmental issues, climate change, zero carbon, uh, rather than you coming at this from being a farmer that wanted to do something different. I'd love to hear a bit more about just, you know, when the penny dropped, how the penny dropped and, and, and the motivation to do what's clearly an ambitious project. And I think, well, I think I nailed it when I said midlife crisis right at the start. Um, I, I, I was, Rich, Richard had always run his own business. Uh, he'd, he'd run his own ethical uh, furniture business, uh, importing ethical garden furniture. Um, and had run that business up until 2008. And then obviously there was a lot of challenges 2008 through the recession. He, that's when he did his film degree and, and kind of, you know, I think that was his midlife crisis. Um, but he certainly became passionate about sustainability. And I was, I'd probably call it a cynical old man. I was working for a PLC. Um, that PLC, a fantastic company, but was paying paying lip service almost to to sustainability. And, and, and I just felt that, they're, they they just weren't doing enough, and and it certainly would, wasn't kind of addressing my my personal desire to 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 do more, and like any I guess like any good business or good idea, it starts starts in a pub over a few beers, and and there there was a there was a passion from both of us. We were looking at the democratization of energy and smart energy grids. We were, were looking at water and water scarcity. We were looking at food. Uh, and 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 how they all played a part in kind of future cities. And I was probably the only man in Shoreditch, Shoreditch growing butternut squash on his roof terrace at that time. And so I, I I certainly had a passion for food, but didn't come from that agricultural background. And to be honest, I think that's absolutely paid dividends because we wouldn't have made a lot of decisions that we've made as we've gone along. The challenges that we've overcome, the technologies that we've adopted from other industry uh, industries and kind of co-opted into into our industry. We've we've taken water filtration technology from the swimming pool industry. Uh, we've taken uh, air filtration technology and robotics from the car industry. And and there's there's lots of kind of different areas where where we've just not kind of you come up against those barriers and you would usually take that traditional agricultural approach, I would say. And, and, and whereas I, I think it's paid us dividends where we, where we haven't. Um, so yeah, the, the, the business started with, I think it was, and I think it was also that, that opportunity, one of those kind of, I'd, I'd taken a salary all of my life and, and, and worked for somebody else all of my life. And it was that one opportunity to actually, I was at an age where it was kind of, well, actually, if I don't do this now, 
then this nice salary and nice pension and nice kind of protection of working for somebody else, I'm never really going to make that leap. And, and yeah, as you can imagine, running your own business and, 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 and having the responsibility for driving all of the different areas and especially kind of the culture and, 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 and the goals and the values of the business. And we, we set the business up with kind of three, three main areas, which was, we want it had to be sustainable without doubt you're going to future proof that business it, it has to be sustainable it had to be ethical and 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 have have an ethical kind of dividend uh and make sure that we kind of engaged in the right way and 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 whether that's with our local community stakeholders employees whatever it may be uh and then there was a financial return for our investors as well and a financial dividend and so we kind of built the business based based on that and so yeah it, it's been an exciting journey uh, I can't say that I, I I thought I kind of knew stress when I worked for a PLC, uh, but I didn't realize I ho- always had this security blanket of a PLC behind me and I'd be running one of their operating companies and I could probably have a couple of years for poor performance before somebody kind of questioned my ability to run that opco. Uh, but people always get paid and there was always, I could I could lose money for a couple of years and people wouldn't question it. Whereas you can't do that with a startup and very quickly you're spending investors money and 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 yeah very quickly you, you do realize what stress is when you're running your own business that's for sure yeah i've certainly uh, had entrepreneurs talk to me before about how that entrepreneurial journey keeps you alive but shortens your life at the same time yeah i i, I, I can definitely agree with that that's for sure it's interesting thinking about the innovation because again i i've 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 seen a number of businesses successful innovative businesses where that the source of their success has been that ability, that willingness to take inspiration from other industries. And, and sometimes that's that's conscious through you know, doing research into other industries. Sometimes it's, it's as in your case, it's, it's having um, a different and varied back, background that you can bring to the can bring to the party. When you when you think about the future of, of farming and, and, and uh, you know, perhaps urban farming in particular, you know, what what can you see as being the key the key skills that are required the key, the key success factors are, are going to feed into to making successful future farming businesses oh, it, when you look along that kind of continuum from kind of seed germination at one end and seed stock all the way through to waste product from retailer and consumer at the other end and that that whole continuum of of, of food and, and agriculture and farming in the middle of there somewhere um it, it's a highly unoptimized industry um and and but there's a lot of technology kind of being being adopted within there and so it kind of depends on which element of that kind of value chain you're looking at um but you, you the, the, there are some significant technologies that, that are kind of entering now whether it's drone technology and understand how uh, the topography of the land and 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 and, and how to instead of just throwing water around everywhere you see if you ever drive through kind of Shropshire or Cambridgeshire you see these kind of big metal kind of frames that uh, uh, arc out from like a central point that uh, basically they're just very big watering uh, hose pipes and the amount of water that we throw around uh, it like and and how water scarcity is going to be a significant challenge in the future You've now got kind of drip feed and drip tape technology where literally it's only the plant and the root zone of the plant that's getting water. There's no water being wasted. Uh, like I said, drone technology, looking at the topography of the land and where to apply nutrients and applying them at the 
the lowest level and and pesticides as well for for people that use those we we don't use any pesticides but inevitably that's uh, uh, adopted by a number of different kind of farming operations so there there's a lot of different technologies that are all the way along that chain but you you kind of you look at nutrition and nutritional value and and how you kind of changes in the nutritional composition composition of products is now changing and like we work with academics in terms of yeah enhancing the nutritional value of lettuce and 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 that's by you can we can we can stress the plant in different ways we can use it using different light spectrum we can play around with different light spectrum to again enhance the nutritional value and there's lots of different ways that you can play around with it but obviously human health is going to be a significant part of that so uh, and then you go all the way back to the start and, and seeds and you get all the way back to kind of yeah genetically modified crops which is obviously uh, uh, uh again GM is banned in the UK and, and, and across the EU, so it's not something that we, that we use in any way, shape or form, but it's certainly uh, a conversation that's going to enter the, 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 the debate again uh, uh, as it gets more challenging, as climate change plays a part on growing. Uh, then, then genetically modified foods and seed stocks are, are, are again. It's gonna uh, that conversation is gonna uh, enter the conversation, which is, uh, or sort of enter the debate. But it's um uh, uh yeah, there's a lot of different technologies all the way along that kind of value chain, and and I, I don't think there's one that I can select. But the one thing that I would say is it's rich. Like I said, Rich and I came came at this without any kind of agricultural background, and. We, we were we we were surprised at the level of technology technology being used. We we took a corporate investment from Europe's largest independent independent fresh produce business, and it turned over about six hundred million quid a year. It's a fairly sizable operation, and 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 yeah, the technology these guys were using was phenomenal. And 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 so yeah, it's and whether it's tractors they're sewing kind of all of the plugs out in the field that are being driven by gps and and and, and satellites and there's nobody driving the tractor which is very bizarre to watch um but yeah it's it, it's it's heartening to know that technology is being deployed into an industry that's kind of been missed out and sat still for a number of years i'm guessing a number of number of our listeners will be um surprised and interested in the the amount of science the amount of technology involved um even in your operation 33 meters below SW4. Yeah. How 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 do you start building a team of people that can bring that knowledge and that that expertise together? Um, yeah, we we took an approach where we actually worked with academics, and so and and it, certainly on a number of occasions, I had a significant amount of imposter syndrome when sat in a room with PhDs from Cambridge, and 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 so we worked with the Institute of Civil Engineering at Cambridge, and. They working with us in terms of understanding the building and the composition of the materials that the building's made of, uh, and therefore that kind of the effects of that on, on if it rains, what, what like three days later, as the water kind of permeates through the through the kind of uh, the land above us, what effects that have on the humidity downstairs. Uh, there's the set light and then sensor technology that we deployed as well, uh, and then it's the data the acquisition, is then the data kind of capture and analysis. Uh, and then we we work with the Turing Institute as well, and again, it's kind of those guys are 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 yeah, supremely smart. Um, it's it's a it's a case of identifying people like you, and again, it's one of the challenges with agriculture. The average age of a farmer globally is sixty years old, and and in the in the UK it's fifty nine globally at sixty, and it's a case of who's going to grow this food in for us in the future. And actually, you you then look at stoop labour and kind of harvesting. 
uh, kind of bent over and, and, and back breaking work effectively. These are jobs that people are, 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 we're kind of evolving our way out of people wanting to do these jobs. And so applying a technology to, 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 to make the harvesting uh, something that's literally put seeds in at one end and, and a, a packed product comes out of the other end from the farm. Uh, yeah, it's it, 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 it's it's utilizing that technology to overcome all of these challenges. And because you're approaching it in a different way and it's not stoop labor and it's not uh, asking people to stand in the middle of a muddy field in midwinter, it, it's uh, you're attracting a, a different type of person. And uh, chatting to a number of kind of whether it was secondary school teachers, whether it's kind of even primary school teachers with kind of gardening clubs. Uh, or, or, and then you get to kind of further and higher education, F food and the production of food is actually kind of one of those zeitgeist topics at the moment and, and kind of vertical urban controlled environment farming kind of falls into that as well. But again, it, it's, it's attracted a, 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 a different kind of, uh, and different group of people to, to farm in, um, whether that's data scientists, data engineers, whether it's kind of, yeah, engineers in terms of building the sensor technology. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a, a fairly varied bunch that, that, that we've managed to kind of pull together to drive this uh, business forward. And being one of those zeitgeist industries, is that, is that something that's made your, your investment journey easier? Um, or, or I hesitate to talk about investment journeys and easy in the same sentence, but I'm um, inter interested to know how that's been for you. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to not talk about it being easy. Now, I, I, everyone does their due diligence as they would do on any, on any business opportunity and uh, levels of risk are, are, are different, whether in different geographies and different industries. And um, we, we, we launched in, we did our me and Richard had that pub conversation in 2012. We we launched in January 14 after two years of sitting in the British Library, reading Mintel and Euro monitor reports, understanding where fresh produce and trends were going, understanding spending six months down at New Covent Garden Market with the traders down there, trying to understand all the trends. And whilst Richard was kind of researching all of the technology, and and yeah, it's uh, uh, I can't remember where I was going with that answer. Um, Anyway, well, well, we were talking about the investment journey, really, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. how, how that had been. And, and, and so when we launched in 14, we crowdfunded um, and, and taking what was a, an idea and a, a raising money for an idea, crowdfunding is a great place to go. Uh, from there, we took that corporate investment and we then kind of had a cohort of investors that have funded the business that they kind of came from crowdfunded or have been attracted to us through kind of PR since then. Uh, or they've kind of seen us in the press or we've been out kind of talking to different people. But the investment journey, it, it's yes, yes, it's an industry where people can see growth. And the other thing is people will always eat. Uh, so uh, even food inflation itself, just the, 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 the fact that the price of food will always continue to rise, you can see that there is uh, there's inevit inevitably a return in there for investors. But like with anything like this is a capex heavy business so it's a lot of capex up front for 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 something that you're you really don't know what you're you're kind of pushing towards what you don't know what the outcome is and we regularly get challenged are you a fresh produce business or are you a technology business and and it's kind of i, I describe us very much like a cardo that they're a retailer and they're a technology business that sell their warehousing technology and we're a we built a farm. We proved that technology worked by by developing a fresh produce brand and supplying pretty much all of the retailers in the UK and restaurants and food service and showing that 
look, we've we built a system and the technology works, and now we can actually package it up, and we're at the stage where we can pretty much sell a farm in a box, and that's that's the the way I kind of describe the business in terms of yes. To, to just turn around and try and sell the technology it's a very difficult kind of play to explain to investors that's what you're going to do so uh, it's very easy once you've demonstrated that you can do it and you can produce a product at the right price point uh, to then move into the technology play and so and then it's kind of about scaling and, and delivering that into different geographies from there yeah and I, and I guess also what what type of value you're trying to create you know whether that's about the societal impact that you started with or um, you know the, the the investment value, yeah, the, that you you no doubt generated so far. Yeah, and and like I said, we we we, we entered entered the business with we, we, we three strands of the business, and one of them was a return for our investors as well. There was there was a personal, uh, and I think it was just another whether it was an objective target, whatever it was, but just something I wanted to prove that investing in sustainability, we could show a handsome return to investors. So they chose not to go and buy shares in BP or Shell and, and to show that we could make a handsome return for them. So that was just something that uh, a, a kind of a, an additional aside, as well as showing that we can build a successful business and, and, and deploy technology in the right way and have effect of, of growing food with zero carbon impact and, and the environmental impact. I also wanted to move the dial in the investment space as well and, and show that it, it's sustainability. Like we went through, as I mentioned, 2008 in the recession earlier, uh, the, the the biggest growing market from 2008 from 2012 was the green economy. And that's that's that, that sector continued to grow at a rate of 20%. And you see some of the numbers coming out at the moment and the challenges that are faced by some of these huge kind of natural oil and gas companies the rate of change and the the rate that that we are going to change is it, it, going to it's just going to continue to grow with with the the the, the this move to a kind of electronic or electric vehicles at the moment and the speed that that's being adopted i think uh, um i think it's toyota that came out this week they said that they won't be making petrol or diesel cars by the end of 2023 like this, this the rate of change is phenomenal and so yeah i i i i, I wanted us to really have that kind of environmental impact but at the same time show that there was an, a, an investment return because we knew one well, one thing that i know is when we're really going to get significant change and we're seeing this now is when the city follows in terms of following sustainability and we're seeing it with esg investing and we're seeing it with like pretty much everyone's moving a, a portion of their portfolio investment portfolio from being uh, kind of ESG, it, like to to it being a hundred percent of their portfolio, and for me, that's when we're really going to have significant change. Everything really happens when 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 the city and the money gets behind it. And I think that's why it's such a compelling story because I think the ability to to have clarity over those different goals that you had and and and, and give people some, um, I guess some some reassurance, but some some um, motivation that you don't have to make a choice between it's a good business in in the good business sense against it's not against it's a successful business in the commercial and investment sense. And I think, you know, I love, love championing stories of businesses that have managed to do all of those things. And as you say, the, the, the market for ESG investment is changing rapidly and everything, certainly everything we're seeing, whether it's the performance of those types of stocks on the publicly traded markets at the moment in the, in the, the shadow of the pandemic or, or, or the sense that, that people just for, for moral reasons want to, 
to diversify their investment portfolios gives every encouragement that this is definitely an area to to look at for the future yeah i uh, just interested that you've also managed to build around you a, a, an absolutely fascinating and powerful board and i'm wondering how important the board and other stakeholders and collaborators and strategic investors have been on on this type of journey for you um I th- you say that, I don't think we had a board meeting for the first three years. <laughs> um, but the, the, that's because we really like it. There was, there was a lot of kind of bowers and forwards with engineering and trialing equipment and blah, 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 all that kind of good stuff. But it, we, we wrapped, we were very lucky. We, we found a, 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 a chap called Chris Nelson who literally had 40 years of growing experience. And I think his wife thought we were winding him up when we were on a zoom call or a skype call at that time saying we were building a farm underneath london and she i think she was telling him to hang up the call because we were winding him up um but chris joined us uh he introduced us to neil sanderson who uh used to run florette the uh, uh fresh produce uh, or uh, the bag branded bag salad business in the uk um we then took the corporate investment and, and anthony gardner their head of sales and marketing sits on our board we then got Sarah Holbard, who sits on the board of the British Business Bank and and as an ex UBS fund manager, and uh, again she was an early investor. And is that case of just kind of having support and guidance, and then also the good thing about crowdfunding for for all of the the the, the downsides that, that you can get with a complex cap table and 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 the challenges of communicating with a load of investors. Uh, um, yeah, you do end up with a, a cohort of investors who are passionate about the business, and and some of those some of those more uh, uh, I'd say sort of professional strategic investors uh, who then you you kind of lean on them to to, to be mentors as well. Uh, I think yeah, and and I, I absolutely my role as the CEO is to kind of lean on them, and certainly in amongst that cohort, there's people who've scaled businesses as well, uh, and I've never had experience of that, and so leaning on different people at different times to, to, uh, to if I'm facing certain challenges or certain decisions. And I think, yeah, as Neil Sanderson said to me once, which was, unless people are telling me to piss off, I'm not doing my job properly. So I regularly kind of lean on, yeah, our investors to, and it's not managing the company by committee, but at the same time, it's just taking different points of view and, and gaining that experience from people that have done it before and just trying to make less mistakes than your competitor, which is ultimately what any successful business is, is, is making less mistakes than, than, the, than the man next to you. A bit of excellent commercial wisdom there, which I shall borrow and use in the future. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the product. I mean, what, what are you growing? What's, what's, what's down there? And, and what's the market for that like at the moment? I'm assuming you've had to think hard about, um, you know, what to, what to supply into, into which markets. Yes. We started, we started with what's effectively called micro herbs. So really short, like two inches long, sort of, yeah, sort of six centimeters or five centimeters long, uh, 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 herbs that are grown to just really intense flavors. And so we're growing a, uh, about, 30 of these different products, whether it's coriander, fennel, pea, uh, not pea shoots, but uh, coriander, fennel, chives, um, I've, got, I've got a mental blank, mustard, wasabi, we've got all of these different flavours. And again, we were seeing these products being used by kind of Michelin star chefs. We then kind of saw the trend being picked up and the expectation for us was to see it travel through the kind of Michelin star chefs down into the kind of food bloggers and then it being sold in the high-end stores, whether it's 
food halls at Harrods or Selfridges, or and then you see it transition down. And our intention was to kind of take those products uh, into the retail space and make them kind of widely available, which is kind of what we said we, that we would do when we kind of pitched into our crowdfunding video, and it's exactly what we did in Jan seventeen was take it into into the retail space and. From there, and again, the reason for choosing those products was quick, quick growing, great yields, and a, and, and a high price, so uh, and a high market price for them. So, and again, start starting at the highest end, and and then working our way down to the more ubiquitous products. I, I didn't want to start with a iceberg lettuce that takes thirty days to grow that retailed last week in Aldi for thirty nine pence. And so, yeah, it, there was a, a there was certainly some kind of clear decisions made around the type of products at the start. So we were growing microbes. We then transitioned through into kind of baby leaf products, which is your kind of traditional bags of salad leaf that you always see in the market. Uh, and then that's all part of our kind of evolutionary product development. And as we kind of launch new products as part of our current range, uh, and then you kind of carry that on into into summer fruits and into uh, 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 into tomatoes and heritage tomatoes and and, and baby cues and and then but then also taking it through and then moving into the whole heads, but again taking like diversifying the brand into mushrooms and and different areas like that. But the one thing that we'd noticed and. We set the business up. It's called the business called Zero Carbon Food Limited, uh, and the first kind of, and then we trade as growing underground. Um, but the, the 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 thing that we've noticed over the last sort of yeah two three years is this technology is desired by anyone with anything natural in their supply chain. So that's opened us up to having conversations with pharmaceuticals, botanicals, cosmetic companies. So anyone that has anything natural in their supply chain is effectively under threat from climate change. So the sourcing of the products that go into into pharma or botanicals or, 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 or nutraceuticals or uh, all of those different areas, um, uh, it's just becoming more challenging. So whether it's inconsistency in supply chain, whether it's volatility in the pricing, whether it's and the availability, so uh, yeah, we've 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 not just food, but we're we've now moved into we've we've been part of a uh, and I'm under NDA, so I'm just being slightly cautious here. Um, we've we've done a multi-stage R and D agreement where we will end up launching a a range of products. And I think that's about as much as I can say. With a yeah, with a with a cosmetics brand in 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 the end of Q three twenty twenty one. Um, so we're we're starting to see just not just food, but anyone that has anything natural in their supply chain, being yeah, it being extremely challenging, and all of this is created by climate change and, and adverse weather, and that affecting the growing of the product that goes into these products. So we'll continue to extend our range of, of fresh produce products. Um, we'll also be focusing on the nutritional value of it because the nutritional value of a lettuce or a bag of salad isn't sort of that spectacular. Um, but we've got products like our micro broccoli that's got like 40% more uh, 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 um, vitamin K than you would find in a whole head of broccoli, and it's just in a kind of few leaves. I think um, it's because it's super concentrated in these small kind of micro herbs. Um, but we're working with the the bioscience guys at, at Nottingham University, which is kind of when it comes to bioscience, is kind of one of the leading uh, institutions in the UK. And working on the nutritional value and the nutritional composition, like I said, just affecting that by 
changing the 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 the, the, the light spectrum and and nothing more nefarious than that just to enhance the nutritional composition the last thing that we want it to to be part of is is nutritional poverty in the future and making sure that that's widely available to all at the right price point and and not something that is just yeah posh salads for posh people so that's that's certainly not one of the aims of the business truly fascinating and i i i often think about what's what's driving the trends in the in the market for food and you know, the extent to which it's it's consumer taste technology it's it's regulator but you know, from your description there there's there's clearly a, a strong technological piece to it but 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 actually there's an opportunity to to deploy that successfully in many consumer markets not just the obvious ones yeah absolutely and and there's a there's a lot of like people travel a lot now. They taste a lot of different flavors from around the world, and they want to they want to taste those flavors back at home. And so yeah, we we, we were growing like wasabi shoots where you just get this intense heat and kind of nasal. It's like you've eaten the kind of wasabi paste, uh, uh, and well, and unlike what's in most of it in the UK, which is horseradish. But yeah, this is at, like actual wasabi and our red mustard, which literally you eat a mouthful of this and it tastes like coleman's mustard and it's a really long flavor and then you get this kind of the kick and heat of, of mustard that comes through at the end and so you've got some amazing products that people have got used to, to to tasting all of these different flavors from around the world and yeah and 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 for us it's just about making sure that we continue with our r&d and and, and mpd to con- continue to evolve the range and yeah there's there's i think there's lots of uh uh different flavors that we're kind of playing around with and 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 yeah and there was one of them that we're trying recently that's it's almost and this sounds slightly unpleasant but it's it's when you taste it, it almost tastes like the best way to describe it is it tastes like electricity and and it's it's a szechuan pepper but it's yeah it's it's a it's a really beautiful product so yeah we we certainly play around with with flavors and and taste combinations and certainly yeah on occasions feel a little bit like willy wonka <laughs> i think you've missed your vocation with it tastes like electricity there's a marketing career awaiting you third third generation career for steven oh, God. Uh, no, no. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it'd be interesting just just to finish up really by by talking about uh, cities. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times about the the role of farming in cities, the way people behave in cities. I guess from a supply chain perspective, the reduction of of miles has an impact on on the carbon objectives you've got. What what are your thoughts about where cities are going and and, and what role uh, more local industry and local agriculture can can have in that journey? there's certain products that will always certainly certain products that will always be able to be stored uh and and can travel and so you're talking about grains and and rice and wheat and things like that um if we're ever deploying our technology uh, as i've said before if we're ever deploying our technology to to grow rice and wheat we're really buggered as a planet so um because they can be stored for years um, but fresh produce, absolutely, be, being grown close to where it's being consumed. The moment you cut a product, the, the, the sugars are turned into starch. And so you want to contain that flavor and you want to get it onto people's plate as quick as possible. Also, the speed that you get it onto people's plates, the longer it lasts in their fridges. So if, if, we, if we cut two days out of the supply chain from it being traveling up from Spain, for example, then that's two extra days in somebody else's fridge. Well, two extra days in somebody else's fridge is the chance of it not being kind of left to rot and it going into to, to part of creating a food waste problem and, and going into their bin and it actually being consumed. So really shortening the supply chains on fresh produce when 
when you look at the modeling around super conurbations and how that's going to kind of play out when you look at UN and, and, and IPCC modeling, uh, obviously water is going to play a massive challenge in that. But I, I think we'd, we spend a lot of time with architects and town planners and people like that, or not too much time, that's for sure. Um, and and certainly, there's they're 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 trying to get kind of growing back into people's gardens and and creating that space. And whether it's community gardens or like or, or whether it's like even private gardens within people's homes, but creating that space where it's almost designed out for a period of time. Um, and and that's being reintroduced, but. I think that the, the piece that I keep banging on about with them is there's an education piece as well. And we're seeing this in schools at primary school level and, and, and an interesting kind of gardening clubs and things like that. But we kind of almost lost the art of growing our own product. And, and, and certainly, let's be realistic, it sits there for, for a number of kind of wealthy middle class kind of, yeah, people. But it's about it being more widely available and, and making sure that it kind of it's it, it is something that, that everybody can take part in and, and like I said with community gardens as well um, we're seeing that those pop up all over London so yeah we will see cities change um, we'll see product grown in different ways we've I think in London you've got product being grown underground by us you've got people growing fresh produce on barges in the Thames you've then got people doing it on rooftops um, so you've literally seen this utilization of space and it's yeah and, and again there's the education piece and getting people closer to where the food is is, is like how food is grown rather that we had this disconnect where the kind of supermarkets sat in between us and we ended up with yeah, supermarkets chopping up bloody carrots for us, and it, like, and then you lose the art of food prep. And and again, all of these things, if you can, if you can buy fresh produce or buy produce and actually turn that into a meal rather than rather than buying a ready meal or the nutritional value of that, <clears throat> but then also at the same time, the the fact that the, the the value of it goes a lot further than the cost you would pay for a ready meal. So, but again, you. You can't get lost in a middle class bubble and realize there's there's a skill gap in there and there's time and people have got like feeding a family on 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 a, like a, feeding young kids on a small amount of money is, is is an absolute challenge and so you can understand why people make some of the buying decisions that they make and it's it's making sure that we take this kind of holistic approach and and each of those bits feeds into these future cities and and that we kind of not just capture the growing element of it, but also there, there's a skills and education piece that goes alongside it as well. I, I love that idea that there's a nutritional poverty issue to be addressed in society. And you know, I think what's been really inspiring about today's conversation is that you've you've made some quite complex technology very accessible, but also just in a very pragmatic way explained some very uh, important commercial and personal goals and how those can align to make a successful business so uh, i thank you for that Stephen. If, if if people want to learn more if people want to see more what, what can they do uh you can, not very much at the moment probably yeah at, at this precise moment you can go to www.growingunderground.com um, uh, and and have a look on. We have an amazing social media manager, which is clearly not me. Um, and and again, just you, and again on Instagram, it's it, it's uh, I think it's grown under on Instagram and Twitter. And you you'll see not only the farm and exactly what we're doing, but some of the great produce and and meals that people are making with our produce. Um, and yeah, we're consistently kind of hiring and expanding the business, and and always looking for new people to join the business. 
Um, but yeah, uh, uh, and and we also run tours, but obviously we're not running tours at the moment. So yeah, and and I, I'm not entirely sure if they would come back, but it's a great way to engage with the public and with our consumers as well. Um, but yeah, that, that that's always a good way to see us uh, and good good way to find out about us. Or you can find it find our products in most of the major retailers. So yeah, if you see a a, a, a salad product there. Uh, with a picture of what looks like a a, a a lab with lots lots of product being grown either side, and you see that picture on the front of it, that's us. So yeah, you'll find us in most of the major retailers. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for for sharing your story, and um, we will sure watch with interest to see what the next step uh, is for growing underground. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you.